Doira Didyal had a beautiful daughter, Mish. She was black-haired, black-eyed, pale-skinned, and she loved her father. But her dad had inside of him a desire to conquer Ireland. And so he sailed his fleet to Ventry Harbour in West Kerry and began to wage war against Finn McCool and his great warriors. They fought for a year and a day until eventually Fionn managed to kill Lloyd. Mish heard the news and she came running to the battlefield, searching for her father among the dead and the dying bodies. Finally, she found his decapitated corpse and immediately threw herself on top of him, licking and sucking at his bloody wounds like a wild animal to try to heal him. When she realised it was futile, she let out a ferocious shriek and began clawing at her ravaged face and blood-stained clothing. Something snapped within her and she fell into utter madness and fled into the wilds of the Schlie of Mish Mountains where she lived like a crazed animal for years. That's only the very beginning of the story of Mish. But for me, it always gets me thinking about madness in Ireland long ago. How did mental illness manifest in Ireland in the Bronze Age or the Iron Age? Did it even exist at all? I know that Mara can mean madness in Irish, as can strain and Adervus and Irhacht and Mira and Nyavjaur and Bwila and Dalsacht and Drevna and Ginnedacht, Ginnedacht, yeah, which sounds suspiciously like Ginnedacht, the genitive case in Irish, which is equally maddening and frustrating, and Gjaltacht and Shivran Mara and Jarag Bwila. So I suppose madness must definitely have been a thing. But the person most likely to have a good sense of this is Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry in Trinity College Dublin and Consultant Psychiatrist at Tala University Hospital. Among other things, he's researched the phenomenon of shell shock after the First World War, the mental health care system in India and madness in our ancient myths. His books include In Search of Madness, A Psychiatrist's Travels Through the History of Mental Illness, and Hearing Voices, The History of Psychiatry in Ireland. There's no better authority than Professor Brendan, so I ask him straight out. Do we have any sense of mental illness long ago? Like, We have a sense that there were people who were mad, that there were people who didn't fit in. But the language used to describe it is so different that it can be hard to know what is the equivalent to what we now call mental illness or what came to be called insanity. So you have the language of witchcraft, the language of religion, and then you have all the things, of course, that aren't remembered from those times. And, you know, traditionally in most periods of history, people with mental illness have not been remembered. So we've some feel that there was something there, but it's hard to know what it was exactly. And... Like we do, we hardly understand madness now, so it's even crazier to go back into the past. But do we think that the same illnesses, I suppose, you know, either depression or schizophrenia or other forms of psychosis, were they as prevalent, do we think, or more so? It's hard to know about the prevalence or how common specific 
what we call mental illnesses were. But we do hear echoes of conditions very, very similar to what we see today. So, you know, pretty much every tradition and history in the world has something that approximates to what we call depression. There was sadness, there was a loss of a will to live, lack of purpose in life, a wanting to be dead very often. And then also there was psychosis. Now, that's a term we use for any extreme state of mind that involves some loss of contact with reality. And we come across this again and again. So we come across this in history, most often in religions, where we hear about particular figures whose visions or voices were interpreted as, you know, the voice of God or the saints. And um, But those are very much the exceptions, those people. The vast majority of people who had these kinds of symptoms were not hailed as saints and were not held in high regard. And the evidence is that they were poor, they were homeless and they died. And so in terms of Ireland, I'm just thinking Irish history, well, we have what's in the history books, but that's about kings and leaders and things. Then we have archaeology, which is like stones and things. And we have the manuscripts. So is there any of those sources that give us any glimpse on mental illness? Well, it's mainly from the manuscripts or the mythology. So we're looking mainly at stories about druids and stories, you know, you know the great stories in which we find traces of things. And this is prior to uh, Christianity arriving. So we had um, druids who could cause someone to become mad. Um, so they might be uh, asked to blow a wisp, which was a piece of straw or grass, into somebody's face. And that could make the person into a madman for the rest of their life or, or a mad woman. So we have stories like that. Um, we have various, various other kinds of traditions as well. For example, in County Kerry, we have Glen Nigyalt, which is the Glen of the Mad. And um, we have Tober Nigyalt, which is there, the well of the mad. The water in the well there was said to cure madness. But there's also the story that this place was somehow sacred or special and that if people who were mad were left to their own devices, they would all eventually end up there. So you had the story of Sweeney, most famously, maddened in battle, battle crazed, as it were, who became a wandering madman and was able to travel long distances, just touching down from time to time on the earth. Mad Sweeney, or Swivna Gelt, was a chieftain crazed by the Battle of Moiroth in 1637 AD. And because of that, he became a wandering madman for the remainder of his days. He was cursed by St. Ronan Finn, the abbot and patron of Dromiskin County Louth, for having dared attack him. The abbot condemned him to living like a bird in the trees, as high as a spear cast into the sky, and then dying at the point of a spear. He travelled the length and breadth of Ireland, and as a madman, he became light. And this meant that he could move from place to place, touching down on the earth only from time to time, essentially flying, but not quite flying. And like all people who were mad at the time, it was said he ended up in Glen Nyalth, the Glen of the Mad in Kerry, where all people who were mad and wandering the country, and there seemed to have been a few of them, were said to end up there. And there they were to drink the water from the well, and eat the watercress in Tuberningalt, the well of the mad. So the story of Sweeney is so interesting because it contains this notion of, you know, the mad person as travelling the land, you know, uh, sleeping in the yew tree, 
uh, eating berries and in, in that sense being connected with with Ireland with with the with the earth and the vegetation and so forth and his ultimate death of course is at the hands of a human and this too speaks to the negative outcome or the difficulties faced by many people with mental illness at this time but it, it, it's a beautiful account the fact that he was in touch with nature, that he was sleeping in the trees with the birds, that he was almost in tune with them, and that obviously the church wasn't very happy if the bishop was putting an oath on him. And it's almost as if the sense that he had connection to a wisdom, a type of nature wisdom or instinctive knowledge that was different from the church, that was like more akin to the fool in Lear. Yeah. It was a positive portrayal overall, was it? Yes, it was. I mean, it's portrayed as a... As a sad story, there is a sense of alienation from the human, but that is counterbalanced with this sense of connection with nature and with the earth and um, this notion of a of a pattern, the notion of a journey that he was going to end up somewhere and that this was somewhat predestined. Again, you know, mental illness has always brought out this this idea of mystical connection with the earth, the notion of another kind of wisdom that is inaccessible. This is a romantic notion and the reality for a lot of people didn't match the romance of the idea. But this idea emerges again and again and we see it in religions where people are seen as prophets who might, if we were to retrospectively try to diagnose them, they might be seen as hallucinating or seen as being deluded or being grandiose. But for some of them, there was something about their context that led to this very different interpretation of what they were experiencing. So we see some of that in Sweeney as well. The other thing about Glending Yalt that's so interesting is uh, near the well, there is Fool's Crossing, which is some stones, a small stone crossing across a stream. And this was said to cure people who were intellectually disabled or fools or imbeciles in the language of the times. And why this is so interesting is there are very few myths from that era around the world that make it distinction between people who are mad, say mentally ill, and people who are fools or imbeciles, that is to say intellectually disabled. And so Glending Yalth is, as far as I know, unique in having these curative myths or these stories for both groups of people and drawing a distinction between the mad and the imbeciles or the intellectually disabled. What did the intellectually disabled do to cure themselves of these stones? They simply walked across the stream. And apparently they would be cured by doing that. I know we're talking about a mythic figure from the 7th century, but I feel like Brendan is actually describing me in my 20s when I wandered the earth around India and Africa with a strong sense of alienation from the human world and a seemingly mystical connection with nature and the planet. I was definitely somewhat deluded at the time and occasionally verging on hallucination. But this is supposed to be an interview. I hadn't meant for the professor of psychiatry to start analysing me. I wondered, though, if I hadn't ended up seeking shelter in a hut in the Himalayas in my 20s, would I have found myself in Glaunagalt? Do you think, are there lessons 
to be taken from how we regarded mental illness long ago? Or actually, was it rather grim and or have things improved? Well, it, it, things have changed, certainly, since long ago. But when you look at the, the myths and the stories from this era, you do find that they are often ways of accepting and helping people. So, you know, in the... You know, when monasteries were flourishing, you found that stories grew about various monasteries that uh, people with mental illness were welcome in them, but also particularly that they would be cured. And there were stories about being in a monastery at sunrise on certain days would be curative as well. And I think a lot of these were ways of, if you like, describing care or fitting people in, people who didn't fit in very readily. And, you know, some people with mental illness or with intellectual disability, they struggle to fit in. Our societies are inhospitable to them. And some of these stories are ways of them clicking in. And another one is to do with Madman's Chair in Donani in County Louth. And this was a, a rock there on the beach and um, there was a number of stories if a person sat in it uh, a person with madness sat in it during a lucid period you know when when they weren't so bad Mm -hmm. that they would be uh, stuck in that lucid period that that would remain forever they'd be be healed they'd be healed essentially but there were other stories as well that if someone who was perfectly well sat in it that they would go mad um, so these are really in- interesting, you know, and there's a lot that's so much that's interesting there, even in that the idea that someone could be well and then become mad. That wasn't present in every culture. Some cultures imagined you had the mad and you had those who were not mad. So even the admission that those who were mad could be cured and those who were well could be mad shows a sophistication of understanding that uh, a lot of people still struggle with. Yeah, not only the, that the mad can be cured, but that the mad have periods of lucid of lucidity when they're not mad, yeah. which is lovely. And like, does that this madman's chair does that still exist, or is that being destroyed long ago? Madman's chair still exists. You can find it on the ordnance survey maps. Huh. And uh, my family and I went off in search of it, and we were walking along the strand, seeing these rocks, and I was saying, "Yeah, this looks like a chair," and they were laughing at me. And then we went around the bend and unmistakably a large rock in the shape of an armchair, no doubting it at all. And we checked it on the map. It's still there. And if you go to see it, you can sit on it if you dare. Uh, we It was a little bit wet the day we were there. But uh, yeah, it's still there. And it's recognisably a rock in the shape of an armchair. And I can see how the story developed from it. And was it in one of your periods of lucidity? One of my rare periods of lucidity, we actually found the chair. realize it's never wise to romanticize the past, but the attitude to mental illness, at least what can we discern from the few references in old myths and manuscripts, does seem to have been surprisingly enlightened. In our current time of chaos and stress, it seems all of us occasionally suffer from mental exhaustion at the very least. The idea of being able to go to a specific monastery at dawn on a particular day and know your troubles would be eased is incredibly alluring. 
Even just the idea that the community accepts that mental breakdown is a fact of life and that we can easily recover from it and become strong again. But it seems to go even further than that. Did our forebears believe that people experiencing mental illness were actually better off or healthier in some ways? Yeah, there is a sense that they're more connected or maybe you might say less deluded uh, than than people who weren't mad and that they, this uh, better connection. Now, of course, these are the stories. It is very difficult to figure out what the reality was for your average person who was mentally ill or intellectually disabled at the time. But there certainly is a sense from the stories that there was an effort to understand, an effort to accept uh, and maybe an effort to integrate people one way or other. That's the most remarkable thing from those stories. I don't really know for sure whether or not I was actually mentally ill in my mid-twenties, but I definitely had delusions, wonderfully wild, positive, eccentric delusions. And I'm glad I never ended up in the psychiatric system, that I was able instead to find my own way and my own answers, wandering through the villages of the Himalayas and the Andean foothills. There was a freedom there and an acceptance of oddness that sort of reminds me of Brendan's portrayal of Ireland long ago. One of the most interesting things about this entire history of mental illness in Ireland is things that didn't happen. So when you look at the history of mental illness in other countries, you come across witchcraft and more specifically witch hunts in which people who might now be deemed mentally ill were considered to be witches and were persecuted. There's really no evidence that happened in Ireland at all, at least in relation to people with mental illness or intellectual disability. Other things that didn't happen at a much later point, for example, was psychoanalysis from Freud, which transformed mental health care in a lot of the world, but didn't make hardly any impact in Ireland at all. So what were we doing instead? Well, we built huge, big institutions and we put people into them. And again, What's most interesting here is what didn't happen, which is that the Roman Catholic Church had no involvement in the psychiatric institutions apart from supplying chaplains. So you had, um, you know, the Irish psychiatric hospital system in the 1960s had over 20,000 people in it, which is more than double the number of people in every other institution put together. You know, prisons, orphanages, industrial schools, mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, easily the largest institutions in the history of the state. The Roman Catholic Church had no involvement. But of course, this disturbs, you know, the very accepted narrative of recent Irish history, which is that the Roman Catholic Church is responsible, you know, for all of the problems and difficulties in recent Irish history. Now, it is responsible for a lot of them, but not all of them. And the history of the uh, asylums shows that uh, we are very capable of institutionalising large numbers of people without the involvement of the church and way more than the church institutions ever did. And were those institutions as bad as the sort of the image we have of likes of Bedlam or images of, of, of abroad, of these dark dungeons and places? The institutions were huge. Uh, they, were, they were very, very big. And, um, you know, the issue of treatment, which you mentioned, we, we didn't go in for active treatments as much as other countries did. We did some treatments. But, uh, you know, for Ireland, the primary treatment 
is putting each other in institutions. This seems to be our go-to position for all kinds of awkwardness, social problems and difficulties, which is that we put each other into institutions. And that seems to have been our primary treatment method. We did other things too, but nowhere near like other countries. So the institutions were, you know, they were difficult, but they were very socially embedded. And... um, you didn't need a medical certificate for most of the asylum's lives to be admit, admitted. So families would leave people in in the um, start of the winter into the asylum and then collect them, say, at the end of the summer again to work on the farm and then put them back in. And that was called wintering in. They weren't hidden institutions. There were enormous big things that everyone knew they were there and they were used in subtle ways. And you see this in the early history of mental illness as well in Ireland, which is communities and families using structures to meet community and family need, not necessarily uh, individual need. When I look through old asylum archives and look at the letters that families received from doctors, the copies of letters sent, and also the letters families wrote in response, there are stories of profound sadness. So to give an example, um, a correspondence from the 1880s in Oma, where the uh, resident medical superintendent in the asylum writes to a family saying, look, your family member is well, has been well now for more than a year and is, is, you know, can go home. And the family write back to say, thank you, doctor, for your letter. Unfortunately, we can't handle him here at home. He is too disruptive. He should stay in the asylum until he dies. Please write to us again when he dies. Very harsh sounding to our ears now, but you're probably looking at a family that was poor, a family that might have had other problems, certainly other other children, other family members in need of looking after, and a society that offered one solution only for this kind of difficult individual, which was into the institution. If anyone does need or want to seek out the services of the madman's chair, head up to Donani in County Louth. I recommend stopping in at the Glide Inn in Anagassan for a great feed of local shellfish on the way. They'll point you in the right direction. Just make sure you're reasonably lucid when you get there. You've been listening to The Almanac of Ireland with me, Mancon McGann. The series is produced by Colette Kinsella and partially funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. 